Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Chris. Hey, Wendell. It's that time. What time is that? Wendell in the, the wild, wild time. time. <laughs> and we are having our special Christmas edition. I know. I love that we have a Christmas edition. Right. How cool is that? It's great fun. So we have a really cool visitor today. We have Scott Santino from the Ipswich River Wildlife Sanctuary, who is going to talk to us about mammals in winter. Yeah, because we have some mammals that we're going to talk to you about today, but in a very special way. That's right. Chris and I are going to do a reading of Mr. Willoughby's Christmas Tree. I love it. I love this book. I love the story. And I love the illustrations in this book. It's really beautiful. If you haven't seen it, you need to go out and find a copy of it. Who's it by? Who's the author? It is It is Robert Barry. Nice. And there's actually a newer version. The one I am holding in my hand right now is probably, you know, 50 or 60 years yeah. old. Find but that there one. there is a newer version. This one is very, the drawings are very simple and it's not a lot of color. No, but they're, but they're wonderful. Adorable. Yeah. It is adorable. Basically in the story... Mr. Willoughby gets a Christmas tree, and it's a little too tall. So he ends up inadvertently sharing it with some friends of his. With very many <laughs> friends as we go through the story. Mr. Willoughby's Christmas Tree by Robert Barry. For Papa, Mr. Willoughby's Christmas Tree came by special delivery, full and fresh and glistening green, the biggest tree he had ever seen. He dashed downstairs to open the door. This was the moment he'd waited for. A magnificent tree, splendid, he cried. Please, sir, won't you carry it right inside? I think it might look best this year, right in the parlor corner here. But once the tree stood in its place, Mr. Willoughby made a terrible face. The tree touched the ceiling, it bent like a bow. Oh, good heavens, he gasped. Something must go. Baxter, the butler, was called on in haste to chop off the top, though it seemed quite a waste. That's great, Mr. Willoughby cried with glee. Now we can start to trim my tree. When the trimming was well underway, the top was placed on a silver tray. Baxter said, I know just who'd be delighted with this Christmas tree. So it was presented to Miss Adelaide, Mr. Willoughby's upstairs maid. Won't this tree be a pretty sight when I have trimmed it later tonight? But the top, oh dear, I'm so afraid, will have to be cut, sighed Miss Adelaide. And so with scissors sharp and long, she snipped off the top while she hummed a song. The top was set out the very next day in back of the house to be thrown away. That little treetop caught the eye of Tim, the gardener passing by. He was certainly not about to see this little tree thrown out. He hurried it right home straight away to see what Mrs. Tim would say. Fa-la-la, surprise, surprise, his wife could not believe her eyes. But our house, she said, it's so snug and small, I do not believe we need it all. And before Tim had a chance to shout, she cut off the top and threw it out. Barnaby Bear was padding by. It almost hit him in the eye. 
Now who would throw a tree away so very close to Christmas Day? I'll take it home, that's what I'll do. Look, Mama Bear, I've a present for you. Isn't it a pretty tree? yawned Mama Bear quite drowsily. Before we go to sleep this year, let's have a Christmas party, dear. But Little Bear, standing off far, cried out, That tree won't hold a star. Barnaby said, Let's cut a hunk off the bottom, here at the trunk. But Mama Bear just shook her head and sliced the treetop off instead. Jolly by golly, Barnaby said with a kick. Mama, that surely is just the right trick. Let's trim it with bells and honey rings, some berries and tinsel, and popcorn on strings. Mama said, trim it just as you like. I've got to tidy up for the night. This top we won't need any more. I'll put it just outside the door. Later on that frosty night, Frisky Fox came into sight. He spied the treetop, rubbed his chin, opened his sack, and stuffed the top in. He scampered home and jumped his gate. This Christmas present couldn't wait. It's even better than mincemeat pie, says Mrs. Fox with a happy sigh. Then the foxes saw that their Christmas prize was just a wee bit oversized. There, my dears, now don't you worry. I'll fix this top in a hurry. Benjamin Rabbit found it then, just outside the fox's den. It seems he thought, most certainly, Santa left that for my family. Look, he cried, see the tree I found. With that, he called his family round. Then there was a merry-making, rollicking, frolicking, carrot-shaking celebration (laughs) around the tree. All were happy as rabbits can be. Benjamin Rabbit, with his own hand, sliced a carrot and made a stand. Now we'll see how this will look in our little chimney nook. But right away the children cried, Look, it's leaning off to one side. It's too tall, that's all, said Mrs. Rabbit. And as though it were a summer carrot, she gave it a chop and threw away the top. Then Mistletoe Mouse just happened to see that tiny tip of a Christmas tree. He pulled it through the snow and ice. Up some stairs, he fell down twice. At last he reached his cozy house. It's just the right size, said Mrs. Mouse. Then at the top, if you please, they put a star made out of cheese. Oh, wasn't it grand to have a tree exactly like Mr. Willoughby? And the last frame of the book, let's tell our readers. It's lovely. It's Mr. Willoughby sitting in a chair by his tree. Just in back of his chair and under Mm -hmm. the tree is a little opening to a mouse's home and you can see the little tiny tree inside and you can see the little (laughs) tree inside and all the mice are dancing around it it's awesome the illustrations in this book are so beautiful (laughs) i wish we could show those (laughs) and the book by the way is from 1963 and again the author is robert barry mr willoughby's christmas tree So joining us at Wendell in the Wild today, we have Scott Santino. Um, Scott, for our listeners who don't know, can you just tell us a little bit about what it is you do at Mass Audubon? Sure. My title is Sanctuary Naturalist and Day Camp Director here at the Ipswich River Wildlife Sanctuary, which is located in Topsfield. And as a naturalist, I get to teach people about nature, um, people of all ages. And so some days I get to go in and and meet with kids who are in grade school. Uh, Other days I get to go travel and bring people to wonderful places to look at birds. And then on some days I'll go to assisted living facilities and bring nature to those folks who can't get outside anymore. And so it's a very gratifying job to be able to talk about what I love with so many groups of people. That's a great job. That is a great job. Can we, we want to sign up. Yeah, how do we get that? <laughs> great. Uh, we, 
right. Happy years in the field learning about nature for sure. <laughs> oh, my. Well, that is why we have invited you to talk to us today. We did a fun little reading of Mr. Willoughby's Christmas tree and four of the animals that are talked about in the book. Of course, they have idyllic lives. They have houses and they have a Christmas tree and they have plenty of carrots to eat. And we thought we would talk to you about what it's really like for them. So there's a bear, there's a fox, rabbits, and a mouse. Why don't we just take it from the top? I know we probably don't have bears here in the Boston area, but there must be some in Massachusetts. Yes, so the species of bear that we have here in Massachusetts, and, you know, they are slowly but surely, you know, encroaching on more uh, urban areas, and and sometimes you hear about that black bear making its way into a a Boston suburb. So they're Mm -hmm, certainly around, you know, if you go... Uh, I like to think of it as the 495 belt. If you kind of go outside that 495 belt into central Massachusetts, further west, you're likely to encounter black bear. And same thing, you know, when you head north into southern New Hampshire, you're more likely to encounter the black bear. Okay. And so, you know... They're, they're a wonderful animal. They're an omnivore. I think a lot of times people think of bear as these big kind of bloodthirsty right. carnivores. But really, they're, they're, I like to think of them as opportunistic eaters. You know, their <laughs> diets are very varied, and they would much rather eat apples out of your apple tree than have to run around and hunt, you know, living prey. Interesting. Oh, that's a good point. Right. It's easier, for one thing, right? It sure is. Yeah, yeah. Do they hibernate all winter long? You know, bear are typically thought of as being one of our true hibernators, and and hibernation, you know, has a pretty specific definition, and so really here in New England, we have very few what I would refer to as true hibernators. An example of a true hibernator would be, say, uh, the woodchuck or groundhog, and and the way I like to teach it is, is, you know, when an animal like a groundhog, which is a true hibernator, goes into its hibernation, they lower their body temperature, they lower their breathing, they lower their heart rate. It's kind of as if they've put themselves into this uh, induced winter coma because what they eat isn't available during the winter months. Okay. Bear go into this type of dormancy that I like to call torpor. It's kind of a semi-hibernation. And so their temperature, body temperature that is, goes down just a little bit. And their breathing slows down a little bit, and their metabolism slows down a little bit. And so if we were to do a bit of an experiment, and and we were to go out in the field today and dig up a woodchuck, let's say, and we shook that woodchuck, and we said, woodchuck, wake up, wake up, this animal would not wake up. You know, it it would take some time for its physiology to catch up, and it would need to arouse itself. If we found Mrs. Black Bear out in the woods today and we said, hi, Mrs. Black Bear, wake up, wake up, we better have our running sneakers on. She's going to wake up in a flash. She's she's not going to be very happy. Okay, Okay, that's good to know. know. All right. So so we're probably not going to see them out much, even though they're not a true hibernator, black bears. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, they're most active, you know, in the fall, trying to consume as many calories as they can, because again, you know, winter months, these animals are not out looking for Christmas trees at this point in time. <laughs> these animals, they are in Mr. Willoughby's for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, their their food availability is is really tough. Okay. and so you know, if they can sleep through long periods of time in which it's going to be tough for them to find food. It's just better energy conservation for them. And interestingly enough, you know, this is about the time when female black bears give birth. 
Um, so, you know, usually in January into February, uh, they'll have uh, a young. It's usually one young, sometimes two. Okay. And so, you know, while she's in her kind of semi-hibernation, um, she's giving birth and nursing a young pup. Okay. A so, young pup, rather. Right. So that, that's another reason for them to bulk up. They need that extra energy. They sure do. For the cubs. Okay. So let's contrast that with a fox. What would a fox be doing? So here in Massachusetts, we have two species of fox. We have the more common red fox, and we have the less common gray fox. Okay. And both of these canines are active during the winter months. And, you know, in the next month or so, that's when these foxes are likely going to be pairing up. You know, oftentimes we hear sometimes if, if you live in a, a, a more rural wooded area, you may hear some interesting sounds at night. You know, mm-hmm. I sometimes we'll hear people say, it sounds like there was a child screaming in my woods or something yes, like that. Yes. And if you're hearing those kind of eerie, you know, blood curdling sounds, chances are pretty good you're hearing a red fox. And so they too have a diverse diet. They're going to be, you know, eating things that pass, uh, you know, cross their paths. It could be things like mice or meadow voles. It could be birds or in the springtime birds' eggs. And they too will take advantage of an herbaceous diet, you know, eating fruits and berries and things like that when that's available. And so again, you know, the the, the winter months is, is a tougher time for them to forage and they need to make sure that they're, they're getting out each evening and looking okay. for available food. Okay. I did not know that. Now, um, you mentioned, too, that they will be mating in January? They will. That's okay. when they'll, they'll, they'll pair up. You know, one of the unique okay. things is when we talk about these four animals, you know, for, the, for a large part, the females, they are doing the, the birthing, they're doing the raising, you know, they, they're, the females, you know, are uh, much more invested in raising the young. Mm-hmm. With our canines, this is a unique situation where they will pair up for a lengthier time, and the males are believed to help out with raising and feeding the young. And, and you're not going to see that with male black bears. You're not going to see that with male eastern cottontails or male white-footed oh, mice. Okay. Um, but but um, Mr. Mr. Fox, he's a good dad. <laughs> good to well, know. <laughs> well I, I asked you about the, the, whether they were breeding at this, at this time of year because in our book... His name is Frisky Fox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, rabbits. Rabbits yeah, are the yeah. next one. So we have two types of, um, or groups of rabbits, I should say, here in Massachusetts. We have uh, cottontails, and there are two varieties of cottontail. One is, is, is abundant in our area. It's called the eastern cottontail. And then there's another one, which is a state-listed endangered species called the New England cottontail, which is very habitat-specific. One of the reasons why they're so rare is because there isn't a, a lot of what we call successional habitat, kind of you know thicket areas here in Massachusetts. Okay. And then we also have hares. We have what's called the snowshoe here. And one of the big differences between the two, even though they're both rabbits, they're both in this order known as lagomorphs, is that when cottontails give birth, they give birth to young that we call altricial. It means that they're born without fur, their eyes are closed, you know, they're helpless. The, the, the adults need to take care of them. Okay. Whereas with hares, they give birth to what we call precocial young. And that means they're young, they come out and they have fur and their eyes are open and they're ready to go. Wow. Well, I so didn't know that. And so those are a couple yeah. of the difference. Yeah. Okay. Here in Essex County, you know, if you see a rabbit, 
chances are, are you know, 99% you're probably seeing an eastern cottontail. Okay. And they're active all winter long. You know, if, if you go out into your yard um, after a, a fresh snowfall and you're seeing, you know, some unique tracks, um, you know, chances are pretty good. You may even be seeing, you know, squirrel tracks or rabbit tracks as well. And what I like to do is I like to follow them. And if the tracks end at the base of a tree, you're probably looking at squirrel. <laughs> and if they end in an area that's a little thicket area, you know, um, shrubs yeah. on the ground, you're probably tracking a, a, a cottontail because, of course, they don't climb trees. I have both squirrels and rabbits, and there are tracks all over the place, but I, I should go out and follow them and see where they lead to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and seeing where they go could solve that mystery for you. And, and what do they do for food in winter? So they... They're, they're, they're pretty strict herbivores, our cottontails. And so, you know, during the, the warm weather months, they're going to eat a lot of the lush herbaceous vegetation. You know, in one of the field guides I have on my shelf, you know, they kind of make joke that it's easier to list what cottontails don't eat than list <laughs> oh, what they do. Okay. Because their, their diets are so varied. In the winter months, because that lust of vegetation isn't available, now they're eating more woody species. And so for anyone who's ever, you know, after a, a long winter gone out to check out on their shrubs in their yards, and they've noticed that the bark at the base of the shrubs has been girdled, oh. chewed off, okay. that is likely evidence of cottontail, oh, you know, chewing the bark. Um, trying to get that nutritious layer below the bark called the cambium. And so their mm -hmm. diet is, is very uh, woody this time of year. And another really kind of outrageous or neat thing that, that rabbits do is it's, it's something that's called coprophagy, C-O-P-R-O-P-H-A-G-Y. And what that means is, is when they're resting during the daylight hours, because cottontails are primarily nocturnal, mm -hmm. they will defecate and they will reconsume their feces and reprocess it because there's a lot of nutrients in their scat the first time around that they don't absorb. And so they'll ingest their scat once. And then we see those little round pellets around in our yard that right. kind of look like cocoa puffs or something yeah. like yeah. that. That's their, their second time scat through. Oh, okay. Did not know that. Uh, okay. Now, here's a note aside. There's no squirrel in our book. However, I should mention that I had my oil changed recently. And when I went to pick up the car, my mechanic came out with two giant Ziploc bags full of maple tree seeds. And I said, oh, did those just get blown in by wind or whatever? And he said, no, Wendell, somebody was storing these in your car. Yeah. I assume that would be a squirrel. You know, it, it certainly could be, you know, I think the larger gray squirrel might be a little pressed to get up and underneath your undercarriage. Okay. Um, but as we make our way into the fourth of these animals that are in your in the book that you read, um, you know, that sounds a little bit more like it might be behavior of the white-footed mouse. Oh! Even though they're not as well known as squirrels as making caches, they too okay. will make food caches with seeds and nuts and acorns and so forth. Wow! I would, it surprised me because those, we used to peel the, I don't know if you did this as a kid, you peeled it back, the maple seed, and mm -hmm. stuck it on your nose to make yeah. like a long nose kind of, right? That's like right. wings. Yes. So I was, it surprised me that mice would be able to carry those. They certainly can, yes. Okay. No, I was just Go saying, ahead. So what, so, do we, what would we see from mice? I don't think about seeing mice in the wintertime, but 
apparently they're out there. No, it's true. You know, one of the things that is pretty unique about all four of these animals is, is they're all primarily nocturnal. I mean, okay. certainly you can see them at certain times during the year in which they're, they're active during the daylight hours. And, and what I find is that you're more often to see these animals during daylight hours at the time of year in which they're raising young because mm-hmm. they want to take advantage of, you know, as many opportunities as they have to forage for themselves. But, you know, this time of year, if you're going to come across a fox or a rabbit or a, a, a mouse, it's more likely to happen at night. Okay. Um, okay. And, and, you know, that's some self-preservation, you know, um, it's tougher for predators to find them at that sure. point. But what's really neat uh, about our white-footed mice is, you know, they have a strong attraction to bird nests. And let me explain what I mean. Okay. So when birds in the spring, they will come in, many of the migratory, and they will build a nest and lay their eggs. And I think a lot of people think of birds' nests as the bird's home. And really, nests are nothing more than egg containers. And so once the eggs hatch and the young leave, the bird really has no need or want for that nest for the rest of the, the season. Well, what the mice will do is they will take over those nests in fall, and they will cache their seeds, they'll cache their nuts, and they'll create a a covering on top of that nest, and they'll winter in it. And so they'll have an opportunity to eat their food, stay nice and warm, and it's almost as if they're recycling the materials that the birds left for them, you know, that they use during the summer months. It's like their winter condo. That's awesome. It is. It definitely is. And, and, you know, mice being so small, you know, the other uh, two of the three animals we talked about are really quite large and have a very dense, you know, fur coat being mammals to help regulate their their temperature. Mice are small and the smaller you are, you know, the tougher it is to keep yourself warm. And so sometimes what these white footed mice will do is you'll get many of them all huddled together in that same bird nest. Um, And it's a way for them to be able to help conserve some of that, that body warmth on these cold winter nights. So tell us something, maybe another interesting thing that people in New England might not know, might not be aware of. Yeah, yeah, I think this is, is, is really interesting. You know, when I started my environmental career as an educator, I started at this place called the Thornton Burgess Society out in Sandwich. And Thornton Burgess was an American author who wrote about Peter Rabbit. And I think when a lot of people think of Peter Rabbit, they think of Beatrix Potter and Peter Rabbit, you know, (laughs) dressed up and, you know, on Mr. McGregor's farm. And our rabbits here in the Northeast do not dig burrows. And so if you were to go out and look for a cottontail, you would find these little depressions that they make in the ground. They're not digging big, deep burrows like Beatrix Potter's um, Peter Rabbit does or the rabbits in Europe do. Interesting. No, I had no idea. But does that mean, like, if I'm walking across over the snow on the lawn, I could be walking on rabbits? So when we have... um, the herbaceous vegetation has grown up and we have fields. They might make their little depressions in tall grass. Okay. This time of year, they like thicket areas. And so if you have any, you know, things like rhododendron bushes or mm-hmm. rose bushes or dense green briar or things like that that are tough for larger animals to get into and get through, those are perfect little areas for cottontails to go in okay. and seek refuge okay we do i actually do have uh there are roadies in the in the yard and you have them too we're gonna have to check it out yeah 
So any final thoughts on, on mammals in winter that you'd like to share, Scott? You know, just that most of our mammals that we have here in Essex County are active during the winter months. And, and one of my favorite winter activities to do, especially after a fresh snowfall, is to go out and go tracking. Yeah. And so if you can become proficient in identifying uh, animal tracks and trails, you can get a really good idea of the, the mammals that are coming through your yards on a nightly and or weekly basis. And that evidence just isn't there during the warm weather months. Yeah, and so true. you might be really, really surprised the animals that are coming through your yard. You know, you could have foxes, coyotes. You could have this um, big woodland weasel called a fisher oh, coming right. through your yard or a raccoon or an opossum and all those other diurnal animals that we see during daylight hours like squirrels you know they are also coming through too and so uh, winter tracking is always a really fun activity and if there isn't any tracks or in the snow that is then we go out and we look for other evidence you know mm -hmm. you can look for things like chews you can look for scat which of course is their droppings right and you can look for lots of other evidence and so um, you know, one of the things as a naturalist I've really taken a lot of pride in is, you know, when you take a walk through the woods, being able to be kind of that uh, nature scene investigator, that NSI agent, to be able to, you know, <laughs> uncover all of these mysteries that you might not even realize are there if you were just taking a casual walk in the woods. Possum tracks are, are, are pretty unique. They have a very unique kind of star-shaped foot. Yeah, that's And then the other thing that often happens is because they have a furless tail that they don't hold up, their tail often will drag through their, their oh, footprints. Okay. Yeah. I knew they looked like stars. That's why I said to Wendell, though, I, I love the, the tracks because they look like stars across my back porch. Right, right. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us and uh, filling in our listeners on, on what to look for this winter. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. Happy to spend some time with you today. So. That was really cool. It um, really was. Having Scott here. Because I see, it's funny, I, I see a fair amount of animals out. and I think people think, oh, it's winter. Nobody's, what are they doing? Yeah, and, and either what are they doing or why are they out why there? Is there something there? wrong? Are they sick? Or, you know, something. Right. And it's no, it's like animals are out and about. They're like us. They get out there. They go. Yeah. I thought the mouse, the part about the mice um, taking over the bird's nest, I love that. It's like totally like recycling. And the fact that they all move in together. Like I, f I picture this big old Italian family of mice all sharing one house and keeping each other warm and sharing right. resources and stuff. I just think it's hilarious. It I is great, it. isn't yeah. it? I, it's a great visual. Yeah, it is a great visual. To picture them all like oh, in a robin's nest or I know. Something. And so now I'm like, I want to go check out, like if I see a ro an, an old nest somewhere, I want to like peek into yeah. it and just see if who's sleeping in there. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And the part that I learned that I did not know that it's kind of gross, but that oh, rabbits yeah, will <laughs> eat their I feces. thought only our dogs did that. Like, right? I know. Yeah. Um, it will eat their feces to get, but it's true, they're getting more nutrients sure. out of it. It seems icky to us, but... I'm sure it's just lunch for them, you know. You know? And what then again, yeah. I, I'm not outside in the snow no. trying to stay survive. alive. Yeah, trying to survive. So in the town, a couple towns over from, over from me, Marblehead, from where I live, I see more rabbits than I've ever seen anywhere in my life. In the summer and the spring, they're everywhere yeah, and i'm like oh yeah. my and they're always these cute little brown rabbits yep i was going to ask scott but i'm assuming they're the, 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 the eastern cotton they're the eastern yeah. cottontail ones yeah because they always seem to be brown brownish gray yeah they're adorable oh they my are. god they're so cute but yeah. i never see them in the winter time but now i want to look look for tracks now i'm right. going to start looking for them right i do see possums i see the possum tracks and i see the possums they come out and 
say hello and right. poke around. Right. And, yeah. We would encourage everybody to get out. Yes. Look around. It's fun to check, to, you know, like you said, after a fresh snow, just look across your yard yeah. and see what kind of tracks and yeah. see what are dog tracks and what are cat tracks. What was interesting, what was funny with the possum tracks is they were all mixed in with the cat tracks because we have two cats. Oh, right. Who That's also right. go outside. Yes. So right. they were sort of all mixed in together. And I'm like, right. I don't know if they were hanging out together or, you know, whatever. I've seen the cats walk by the possums. They don't. They could care less about they each other. They just ignore each yeah, other. They don't yeah. care. Well, they're all pretty well fed at this point. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think a possum's going to eat my cat. <laughs> well, they could dine on him for a good couple of days. <laughs> so until next time, get out there. Get out there and look around. Have a happy holiday. Happy holidays, whichever ones you celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for joining us here on Wendell in the Wild. I'm Chris Stevens. I'm Wendell Waters. Keep it wild. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.